0: Lord, we thank you this morning for the fact that you have breathed out your word for us. We have a greater understanding of who you are. We have a greater understanding of why Jesus came. And Lord, we have a a fuller understanding of what this day and what this celebration is all about. And may we, this morning, rest ourselves in the text of your word to find strength, encouragement, perspective, a renewed passion, Lord, for who you are and your activity in our lives and through our lives. I ask, Lord, that as your messenger, I would simply be the mouthpiece for your word, that you and your truth and your heart would come through as I open up my mouth and represent you this morning. May our hearts all be humble and receptive and teachable, Lord, for what you're going to do, we ask in your precious holy name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, this morning, I want to begin just by asking you a question. How many of you enjoy Christmas shopping? I'll see all, oh, there's a few of you out there that enjoy. How many of you, how many out? be honest, were out yesterday at the mall getting that last gift or present? All right, good, 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 good. Um, how many of you got someone angry because you parked in their parking spot when you were pulling up and, yeah, it's a fun game to play, isn't it? You, you don't go shopping, you just drive around the parking lot stealing people's spots, you know. Um, I know it's kind of the mean side of me coming out there but you understand that. Um, there's a part of Christmas though that we enjoy, right? We enjoy uh, the shopping side of it. Did you notice though, I mean, as, as soon as Halloween was done, those decorations are up and the Christmas music was playing and, and all the, uh, the retailers were out there trying to, trying to promote the season, trying to create the mood so that you will spend money. And uh, what I understand is this is a, actually a really rough time for the retailers. This has not been a, a good season at all. So have fun the next few days because there'll be lots of sales. Christmas shopping though is something that our, our culture does. Um, When my wife and I were living in Michigan, uh, pretty much every year we would go to a a town called Frankenmuth, and it was an old German town, but one of the highlights of that place was a place called Bronner's, and Bronner's was a Christmas store. Now, when I say Christmas store, don't think of a a little kind of store that you go in, it has a few Christmas things. Um, I liken this to a Christmas Ikea, I kid you not, this was a year round store. And when you walk into this place, you are transformed into another world. And you're walking through this other world with all sorts of Christmas decorations all over the place. And if you've been to Ikea, you know what I'm talking about, you get turned around and you get lost. I mean, they actually had a map so you could get through this place. And by the time you were done, you felt just by being there, you had to buy something. You know what I'm talking about. You've been to Ikea. It's like, all right, I'll grab some of those little, little cups and plastic things just so I can spend some money and get out of here and justify it. But it was always a great time. It was great to just jump right into this wonderful environment of Christmas. And, um, you know, it's, it's one of those things that we experience during, during this Christmas time. Now, if you notice the title of my sermon today, it's Christmas and the Environment, I want to tell you what I'm not going to be talking about today. I'm not going to be talking about the incredible damage to our culture when trees are harvested for the purpose of celebrating Christmas. Um, Although the National Christmas Tree Growers Association, yes, it's real, um, claims that about 28 million trees will be sold in the United States each year, Um, that's not what I'm going to be talking about, but it is an interesting side note, isn't it? I'm not gonna be talking about the the wastefulness of electricity because of all the lights we put up every year compounded with the the late hours of the shopping malls and the lights for the the parking lot and all that kind of stuff. We're not gonna be talking about that. We're not gonna be talking about the, the carbon footprint that you plant because of our extra trips to the mall the gas-guzzling automobiles to get to family and back and forth, all those FedEx planes that have to rush because of Amazon. I'm not gonna be talking also about all that Christmas wrapping paper that you still have to pull off your presents, those of you that are doing it properly. Um, (laughs) It's just having fun with you, okay? Um, And and ultimately, we'll go to a landfill somewhere. Not talking about that. Instead, I want to talk about three kinds of Christmas environments, the environment from which Christmas comes, the environment into which Christmas goes, and the environment for which Christmas seeks. I'll just plainly lay it out as we go through this prologue to John's gospel. Now, it's interesting as you think through the gospels, Matthew and Luke give the story of the birth of Christ. They they view the birth of Christ more on a horizontal plane. They tell the story of the people and the events and the activities that are going on on earth. So it's looking at it horizontally, almost from a human perspective. When we come to John's Gospel, it's completely different. John begins his Gospel by presenting the story of Christ's birth from the top down, it's looking at it from above, and this is where we get the picture, this beautiful picture of the incarnation, he describes Jesus as someone larger than the whole world. And so this morning, I would like for us to consider for our time together, uh, the fact that John is drawing our attention to three environments of Christmas that impact our lives, Three environments of Christmas that impact our lives. But we want to begin with the end of the prologue in mind. The end of this section, which is verse 18. Because in this prologue, this beginning of, of John's gospel where he sets things up, he's preparing his readers and giving them a, a rationale for what is he's yet to pen in his gospel. And he says there in verse 18, No one has ever seen God... The only God who is at the Father's side, he, and just put in parentheses, that's Jesus, has made him known. So what John is seeking to do in his gospel is, by virtue of presenting Jesus, is through Jesus to make the Godhead known. So John summarizes why he has come, to make God known. Known, and actually that that is a a word in the Greek, I don't quote Greek much, but this is important here, um, exegeseto, which is the word from which we get exegesis, which means to draw out or to reveal. So we could rightly say this, that Jesus is the exegesis of the Godhead. He is making the Godhead known out of his life, out of his example, out of his words, he is revealing to us who this God actually is. That expression is also used to describe or to communicate these words, to tell or to narrate. So John is telling the story of Jesus and as he's doing that he is reflecting then this revelation of the Godhead. So in other words, think of it this way, as Jesus gives life, and is life, as Jesus raises the dead and is himself the resurrection, as Jesus gives bread and is the bread of life, as Jesus speaks the truth and is the truth, so he speaks the word and he is himself the word. He is the word who reveals God so that we, or so that he, God, may be known. Now with that backdrop, with the end in mind, let's think about these Environments. The first environment is the environment of eternity. And what we're gonna find here is that these environments funnel down, start in this vast place of eternity. And they'll funnel down into this small place where Jesus Christ is on this earth in the form of this baby. So John is starting in this vast place of eternity. And he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. I just want you to notice the, the basic statements that are made here. In the beginning. In the beginning. Now, in order to understand in the beginning, we have to recognize that there was, before the creation, an existence. And it's an existence where there was the Word, where there was That word was Jesus, we understand, and nothing was made without him. We're told that everything that exists has existed or will exist owes its origin, owes its being to Jesus himself. In fact, he is the one that spoke, let there be. He's the one that brought the vastness, the universe, the cosmos into being. I just did a little little quick study um, yesterday, just to just to kind of simplify and give some perspective here. Depending on your source, our solar system is one star, eight planets. We recognize that. We learn about that in school. But our galaxy is made up of between two hundred to four hundred billion stars, or solar systems, I should say. Then over. 100 billion galaxies in the visible universe. So you just gotta think just how how vast our solar system is, and you just move out from there. The whole point of, of giving that picture is to say this, that Jesus Christ created it all, and if that is true, and he existed before that creation, he is far more powerful than anything in this universe. So we understand the magnificence and the, uh, the, the, the magnitude of who Jesus is and who the Godhead is because creation gives us an anchor to say he is far greater than the creation that he created in the beginning. I mean, he's far beyond our comprehension. He's, he's far uh, greater than the vastness of the universe of his creation. So in the beginning, we're told also Was the word in that eternity past? Was this this word? Now we know from this text that Jesus is the word, but why does John use this expression? In what way is he using this word? Well, there's there's a a Hebrew idea of the idea of of that word word, and there's a Greek comprehension of the expression word. Let's think about the Hebrew one here. It really is the expression of divine power and wisdom. Psalm 33 verse six just gives you one example of that. It says, by the word of the Lord the heavens were made and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. So by the word of the Lord, the idea here is that this power, this divine power is the source, is the authority behind things that are done in this world. God introduced the Abrahamic covenant, how? By the word of the Lord. He gave Israel the Ten Commandments, how? By the word of the Lord. He counseled Elijah by the word of the Lord. God directed his people through the prophets by the word of the Lord. So the word of the Lord is not to be separated as we see in the Old Testament from the action of the Lord. Word and action of the Lord going hand in hand. God speaks and he acts both are consistent. So this, is, this title is in, in, in the Hebrew understanding a self-disclosure as the word he has been and is revealing himself to us. Now I just, I just wanna paint a picture for you. Imagine if I came up here during this sermon time this morning and I said nothing. I simply stood here for an hour, looked at my notes, read my bible and then said amen now, some of you would say yes all right <laughs> get that but what you'd have is you would have action without revelation he is the word which means that he reveals himself he isn't just silent Right? The heavens declare the glory of God. There is, there is action by virtue of his creation, but not only that, he has breathed out for us an understanding of who he is and how we are to live. This word communicates, it is a blessing for us. It takes words for me to reveal something to you. It takes words for God to reveal specifics to us. And that is what he has done by giving us not only the word of God, as we would say the Bible, but also the word being his son. Listen to Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Long ago and in many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also, or also he created the world. So he is spoken by his son. So God reveals himself. That's the Hebrew idea. Now let's think about the Greek idea of this word. It comes from this this idea of the logos, which is the primary principle, the primary power behind the universe. It's something that that launched everything into being. So it was understood to be this creative force or this, this source of wisdom. So taking these two ideas, the Hebrew idea the Greek idea, It's not difficult to see what John is doing here. What he's doing is he's saying, just like the Hebrews did, and that the Greeks said that the word, they saw the word as the the one who launched and was the source of everything. It was the wisdom behind everything. It was the power behind everything. It was the source of everything. It was the universal principle. Now also notice what, what John is doing is he's bringing Old Testament and New Testament together. He's bringing Jews and Gentiles together by using this concept of the Word. And it's also interesting that in John's Gospel, he emphasizes the world. For God so loved the world. Well, who is that world? It's made up of Jews and Gentiles, Hebrews and Greek. So John is saying, particularly to his audience, that Jesus is greater than wisdom. Itself, he is the word, in the beginning was the word. And so we recognize then that Jesus ultimately then is the word. It says he was with God and he still is God. I say he was God, he still is God and he is with God. This is the Trinity in the beginning, existing in perfect harmony, existing in full relationship. I say this very, very carefully, but I hope you'll understand what I'm saying here. There is more to Jesus than a baby in a manger. I think you got that, but this is where it gets tricky. There's more to Jesus than a man dying on a cross. There's more to Jesus than a man being resurrected from the tomb. Because Jesus existed in eternity past. The Godhead in its wisdom incarnates Christ to come to this earth, to to be born, to go to a cross, to be resurrected, to ascend into heaven. There's a bigger picture going on. And see, John wants us to see that bigger picture, not just to see the humanity side of things, but to see the divine focus and the divine outlay. So Jesus has always been, he has always existed as part of the Godhead, in heard eternity past. And so in that sense, friends, he is outside of our comprehension. He's beyond our capacity to measure, except for the fact that he is revealed to us in the word, okay? So we, we have great difficulty wrapping our hands around this holy other being, except for the fact that God, in his kindness, has given us his truth so that we can understand him in a greater way. Now, he existed, he eternally existed in the beginning, and by the way, that was a continually um, existing, so that, 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 that word, in the beginning was the word. You could actually say this, you could translate this, this, this verse this way, in the beginning was continuing the word, and the word was continuing with God, and he was continuing in the beginning with God. There was this continual relationship, this continual fellowship going on. So there's this exer- eternally existing, eternally fellowshipping was with God. So there's this fellowship going on. And the idea they're with is this pros toward. It means this 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 leaning in. There was an intimacy by this word. So it's not just that the that the God had just kind of existed in eternity past and kind of did their own thing and every once in a while came together at Starbucks for coffee. There was this Intimate relationship, ongoing fellowship with the Godhead in eternity past. I just I'm reminded of um, the, the Olympic Games, the Winter Olympics. You guys you know, know the, 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 the um, ice dancing that goes on there. I remember Torval and Dean. They were British ice dancers and stuff. And you watch these ice dancers, and they, they're two people, but they almost function as one they mirror each other's movements, they flow together, and that's, that's kind of a picture of what, what God is doing in three persons that are one. There, there's this harmony, there's this fellowship, there's this unity that is taking place together in an eternity past, and still it continues on. And so, he eternally existed, he's eternally fellowshipping, and he is eternally God, and the word was God. He's same in essence, and character, with the other persons of the Trinity. Now, just friends, just as a side note, um, there are some that do not want to acknowledge the Trinity. In particular, there's some cults and what they'll do. They've actually, in their own translation, and they kind of have their own now Greek translations, Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, and they, they will actually add an article in there to say that Jesus was a God. So they'll, they'll affect the, the Greek translation say, oh, well, our translation is built on the Greek. Well, it's a, it's a faulty Greek translation if you measure it with the other Greek uh, texts that are out there. So if you want to undermine God, what do you have to do? You have to, you have to manipulate the text <laughs> in order to try and present God differently. But the text tells us that Jesus is God. So there's this, this environment of eternity. And friends, it's, it's so hard for us to comprehend that, isn't it? What is eternity like? All we know is that God existed there and it's from that place that Jesus comes and we need to think about that because we move now into the the next environment of Christmas here and that's the environment of creation. Jesus was continually in heaven in eternity completely in fellowship and harmony with God the Father and the Holy Spirit but the same Jesus as part of the Trinity created the world and the universe out of nothing And we read in Genesis 1-1 the following words, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So what John tells us um, is that the hand of Jesus fashioned the worlds and gave life to mankind. He says in verse three now of our text, all things were made through him and without him, that's Christ, was not anything made that was made, in him was life and the life was the light of men. So as a person of the Godhead, Jesus is the creator. It's a staggering thought that the universe, that you and I honestly know little about. It's made up of multiple galaxies and solar systems and suns and stars and planets. That is the creation of the Godhead, but specifically that is the creation of Christ. Christ. And this is where we need some perspective. This creation, this vast universe, is but a small, tiny subset of eternity. It's it's a perspective that's hard to wrap our, our minds around. But God isn't bound by the universe he's created, no. He stands over his creation. He is sovereign and ruling over the creation that he has created. And that's what John wants us to see, the majesty and the magnificence of the triune God living in continual harmony and fellowship in the vast environment of eternity compared with what he's about to say next. And the word became flesh. Verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. This Jesus, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, the word left the arena of heaven, the environment of eternity, and entered into a new environment, the environment he created. Now just try and wrap your hands around that one. Try and think through the magnitude of that. Now as a dad, I grew up with Disney movies, right? Keep with me there. There's one movie, the movie Aladdin, that comes to mind here. At the end of the movie, Jafar, who's the vizier who wished to be an all-powerful genie, is tricked by Aladdin to get back into the lamp. And you remember the, the little statement that he makes there? He says, all-powerful genie, itty-bitty living space. See, some of the kids got that because <laughs> they've seen it. And it just gives, it's not the greatest example, but it gives some perspective that God, who is in eternity past, God the Son, as part of the triune God's will and purpose is now to enter into the creation that he has created. There's some pictures out there that show, you know here's Jesus Christ and he has this universe out in his hands, you may have seen it before. And yet, the same one who creates now enters in. But get this, he doesn't just enter into the universe. I mean, as vast as the universe is, he doesn't just enter there. He doesn't just enter into our solar system. He doesn't just enter into, I would say, Earth. He enters into the form of a man. He takes upon himself this, this flesh. Now, friends, that is, that is staggering. He dwells among us is what John says. He literally pitched his tent. He tabernacles with us. But not only that, John wants us to see this, this, the magnificence of, of God's condescensioning act in Jesus in his coming to earth that he's created. Turn your Bibles to Philippians 2. I, I know you know this passage. In fact, you probably know all the things that I'm going to say this morning because you've heard Christmas sermons all throughout your life. But Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5 will help us understand a little bit from a different perspective from the lips of the Apostle Paul as he's writing this. And he gives us this picture because he's, he's talking about humility and he uses Christ as an example for that. And notice what he says have this mind in you yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of god did not count it equality uh, did not count equality with god a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross now just 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 think about the wonder of that statement when we talk about the incarnation It's no small thing. And this is where John is coming from. He's saying, listen, see Christ in eternity past. See him in his environment, fellowshipping with the Godhead. Now see him as this little child taking on the form of mankind, entering in, to the creation that he's created and not only that, limiting himself by the creation that he's created. It's the wonder of Christmas, the incarnation, that Jesus willfully became flesh. We're also told that we have seen his glory Now this might be John talking about what he saw at the transfiguration, Jesus with the glorified body, Um, but I think it also is talking about the acts of Jesus while he was on the the earth, the way in which he emanates this this reflection of who God is, he's making him known. So by his acts of kindness, by his miracles, by his self-disclosure, he is revealing who he is and who God is. Now again, John tells us why he has written his Gospel. Go back to John chapter 20, if you would. John chapter 20 in verse 30 and 31. We see him him pen specifically why he's saying what he's saying. I'll read it for you. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So throughout John's Gospel, he is presenting evidence, or signs, facts, proof, witnessing to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and his goal in doing that is for those of you having read this Gospel or having listened to this Gospel, or you know, however you're coming to this Gospel, that his readers or those that are receiving this would believe. But it doesn't stop there. His goal isn't just belief. His goal is even more practical than that. That in believing you may have what? Life. And he describes that life as abundant life and everlasting life. So everything that John is is revealing in his gospel. Is painting a picture for you and I to see the evidence. Here's Jesus, here's the Godhead. Here's Jesus, here's the Godhead. Here's Jesus, here's the Godhead. So that you and I would believe. And once we believe, we enter into new life, abundant and eternal. That's his argument. That's what he's pushing for, and so from from the prologue, we see this beautiful picture of this this eternity that existed, where where God, the Godhead, was presently fellowshipping, and we see this creation now that is is God's creation, in particular, Christ's creation, but Jesus enters into that creation. And, And he's saying, we've seen his glory, we've seen his acts, we've seen his life, and it is incredible, and it points to who the Father is. Then it also tells us, full of grace and truth. That's not on there. Aha, uh-huh. we became flesh. Um, and he was full of grace and truth. Just some things there about, about the idea of grace. There, there was this thing called common grace. Common grace is what we all receive. Believer, unbeliever alike. Get food on your table, you get the beautiful sunshine, you get the rain, oh we've had the rain, haven't we? And don't complain about the rain if you're in California. Right? <laughs> We're blessed to have the rain. But you know, God doesn't just kind of you know, come over, cast and say, all right, where are all the believers? All right, all right, there's your house, dump rain on you, and dump rain on you. Unless, of course, it's a flood, then I'll miss the believers, and I'll dump rain on everyone else, right? No, God doesn't do that. There's this common, this common grace that God gives. But then there's all, the, we call this this gospel grace, and it's a unique grace that God, through through his endeavors on this, wor- this world, is actually pursuing specific people and drawing them to himself. That is this, this gospel grace, it's what he does. Now here's the thing, when we, uh, when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we actually think and, and, and it, it feels like we're actually the ones that are doing it, but soon we find out that it was actually God who was pursuing us. It was God who was chasing us down. But there's also this this progressive grace, in other words, this grace that is needed then for living your Christ-like walk, and that's what even John gets to here, he talks about the law, the law of Moses, and for many of us, you say, well, how do you connect the law with grace? Well, God gives us an anchor to see what what he is pleased with, what he's not pleased with, and what our problem is, and what the solution is, of course, the solution, our problem is our sin, the solution is Christ. And then once we have this relationship with Christ, we enter now into this new relationship. How is that new relationship fueled? It's fueled by His gospel, it's fueled by His grace. We live by His grace. So, just three emphases here of grace, full of grace and truth. This is who Christ is. He came to present the truth, He came in His, in his way to, to bring grace to us. And then the word is also the light. The word is also the light here, the light in the darkness. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now, man doesn't like to be told that his world is darkness, does he? He loves his darkness, he loves his depravity, he loves his sin. But Jesus, as the light, only shed light on that sin. I mean, if you bring light into a dark room, what's it going to do? It's going to light up the room, and it's going to expose things. That's why, you know, in some places, you bring a light in, and the cockroaches scatter. Why? Because they don't like the light. And this is the reality. Jesus, by virtue of his nature, couldn't help exposing the darkness for what it truly is. So when Jesus left the comfort of heaven, he entered into the environment of creation and by virtue of his character, by virtue of his nature, he shines brightly and he confronts that darkness. Now, see, I wonder sometimes if we we're so focused on the humanity of Christ, and we shouldn't neglect it, but we're fo- more focused on Jesus as a baby, Jesus as a man, Jesus going to a cross, that we forget maybe this, this eternal, magnificent, um, awareness of, of, of the bigger picture of what's going on with the Godhead, that Jesus' existence before the creation tells us of his love and his concern that in the creation that he would come and he would do what he was doing. It's not just a man who was a good example. I remember when my wife and I went to, to England on our 25th anniversary and going into that very chapel, King's College in, um, in Oxford, which is where they filmed a lot of the Harry Potter movies. And in there, they had a little little sign that says, who is Jesus? Jesus was a man who was a great example for us to follow, who sacrifices life for others, blah, blah, blah. Totally empty of any eternal gospel at all. It was just focused on he's just an example. John is not saying that at all. John is pointing to a God who sits in the heavens, who is the creator, who has come to this earth. And friends, he is is magnificent. And So I wonder sometimes whether we miss his magnificence because we're so focused on his humanity. I mean, what a God we serve. What What a love he has given us. What a humility he has shown. What a wonder his example is and his gospel is here at this Christmas time. It's no wonder the angels sang glory to God in the highest because they are amazed that the God of their own creation has now humbled himself in the form of a man in the creation that he's created. How can this be? He is the light in the darkness. So we have the environment of eternity, the environment of creation, which then drives us to the environment of the kingdom. Now hear this. This is ultimately where John is landing his plane. He wants us to see and to believe, but he wants us to see that there is life that flows out of what Jesus has done or the Godhead has done. And so what we have here is that Jesus is the light. He's coming to the darkness to do something. And the doing of something is to provide a kingdom into which those who would believe would be a part. So it's a new environment. It's not just coming into the world. Now see, one of the most famous verses in all, I think all the world is John three sixteen right? For God so loved the world. Ah, oh, see, it's all about the world. That he gave his only begotten son, right? That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. So the whosoever is a subset of the world. That whosoever are the people who now have, in believing and have life, have entered into a new kingdom. So this is what he's driving at. So we want to begin by by just recognizing that not all would respond to his coming in belief. The environment of the kingdom. And notice that the light revealed, verse three, Jesus is the light who brings life. It tells us there a little about John the Baptist. He came as a witness to this light. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him Talk about the light. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And what did he say about the light? What is John testifying about the light? Verse nine, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Now, can I just ask a question? You wonder why Christmas is so focused on lights. You wonder where that comes from? Why we put lights on a tree and lights on your, you know, on your mantle or lights, you know, have light shows. It, it all comes from this, this kind of idea that Jesus is the light. Jesus is the true light who gives light to everyone. He's giving evidence after evidence so that his readers can see who Jesus really is. What this light really is all about. And it's light is the one who gives life. Now it's interesting that John's gospel is actually different than the other gospels. In John's gospel, he gives seven signs pointing to Jesus Christ. He also gives... Seven great I am statements, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection of life, I am the way, the truth and life, I am the vine. All those are statements that are different than the other Gospels. He's driving at revealing Jesus Christ and showing how he is this light. And the other interesting thing about John's Gospel is this, half of it is the Passion Week. And he talks about his his entry into Jerusalem and all the struggle and suffering that he goes through in great detail in his gospel. But ultimately would focus on Jesus' death on the cross for the sin of the world. So for 21 chapters, John is giving evidence, he's giving light so that his readers might believe and have life. But what we find as we read this gospel is that the light is rejected. Many people will reject that light. Man would listen to the evidence. The question is, would they listen to the word, Jesus, about their lost condition, their sin before a holy God, the provision of new birth through Christ, or through his sacrifice on the cross? And The sad reality is that so many would not. Verse 10 tells us that. He was in the world. I mean, that's a magnificent statement in and of itself. And the world was made through him. All right, John's just hammering home that reality. Here's the Creator. In the world, he's created. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's no small statement. They had been longing for the Messiah, longing for the one who would be their savior, longing and longing, and yet when he comes, they reject him, and we find out the reason why, because they're they're blind to him. They were blinded by their religiousness, they were blinded by their own self-righteousness, and so they reject him. They plot his death, they seek to murder him, they arrest him, and then they accuse him of blasphemy, the ones who are blaspheming are the ones who are accusing him of blasphemy. He was put on trial, he was found innocent, but still he was sent to the cross for political purposes. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Those are some extremely sad words. So this this light is revealed, this light is rejected, but this light is also received see, this is where John is coming to. He's landing, so to speak, the plane in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we're told that they, they would there would be some that would believe, and as a result, they would enter into this new relationship with God. They would be children of God, they would be part of the family of God, welcomed into the new kingdom, but also welcomed then into a new environment where, where Jesus was pushing them, where Jesus was drawing them, where Jesus was welcoming them. And we're also told that they were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. In other words, this is what God was doing. As I mentioned a little bit ago, we think that when we came to Christ, that we were the ones that, that actually discovered it. That we sought out the gospel. We sought out God. And, and certainly from our perspective, that's what we were doing. But soon, we realized that God was actually at work seeking us. So we, we know that. It's the grace of God that finds us. That's why we sing a song like Amazing Grace. You know, you know how the first stanza goes. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a rich like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It doesn't say Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. Um, and, and this wretch figured it all out himself and so said yes, you know, I was, I, was, I was lost, but I found my way to the right place, surprisingly, because I'm smart. No, it's all grace. Grace did that. God does that. Grace sought us. Grace bought us and gave us new life. It was the grace of God that found us and brought us out of our sin and misery and into union and fellowship with the Lord. So just summarizing those three environments, just just think through this with me. We've seen this visual backdrop to John's gospel in three words, eternity, creation, kingdom. And we must ask ourselves then the question once again, why did Jesus come into the world he created? This is a great question and probably is one of the greatest questions that we can ask. And probably one of the reasons why we're able to celebrate A day like today, celebrating Christmas regularly. Here's the answer, to bring sinners like you and me into fellowship with his Father and with him and with the Holy Spirit. And we sing about this at Christmas. We sang just a few minutes ago the song by Charles Wesley, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And in that song, there's a line that says this, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them what? Second birth. So this is what John is driving at. Who's the one that talks about being born again? It's John. So why was the word made flesh? To give us second birth. To bring us out of our sin, misery, and darkness of our condition and into fellowship with God by the sovereign power of the Holy Spirit. We also sing about this in the Christmas hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem. There, in one of the stanzas, it says, "This cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. Enter into this new kingdom. Enter into this new relationship." See, so we sing these Christmas songs, but these Christmas songs are are rich with the reality of what God is doing—not just in I don't say human terms, but in deep theological terms that flow out of a passage like this. God is at work, he has been at work, he is at work today drawing people into himself and he's saying, listen, here is God in eternity. Here is Jesus in the creation that he's created. Look at him, see him, be amazed by him but as a result of that, believe in him and if you do that, you will have life. And this life will be the means by which now are the result of you entering in, being born in us today. And again, that's what John is wanting us to see, the Godhead in eternity past, sending the Son, Jesus Christ, into the world he created in order to be light and the greatest gift ever given to mankind. You can reject him, you can receive him. He's come. He has made the Godhead known question is, what will you do? Now, realizing that this is Christmas, realizing that um, this is somewhat heady, I do wanna bring just kind of three applications at the end here, more thoughts to ponder, things to consider as you move throughout this day, hopefully will fuel you even as you sit around as family together and talk about Christmas, right? How do these three environments then of Christmas impact our lives. I don't know if you've thought about it this way. The first thing I want you to notice is the, the arena of eternity draws our attention to the Godhead. And I just wanna encourage you to take time to, to see the magnitude and the magnificence of God in all his glory. Do you have a small view of God? Do you know God? How well do you know God? If you truly understood God as existing in eternity past but having the power to create the vast universe, how would that change your understanding of his power to work in your life now? So I wonder whether or not our view of God has been diminished because of what we see, what we feel, what we touch. And what, what John is desperately wanting us to see is, is to, to somehow be, be shot way up above the universe into the realm where the Godhead is existing in eternity in control of this creation that he's created and for you to say, look at him. He is worthy to be worshiped. This God is holy. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He is kind. He is loving. He is holy. He is just. I mean, all these attributes of God are attributes of God even outside of his creation, if that makes sense. They're not attributes of God because of his creation, and we see them fleshed out in his creation, but that is who God is. And do we see God for who he really is? And if that's the case, when we come to this baby in the manger, yes, this is God incarnate, but this God incarnate reflects the Godhead. He's there to make God known. He's there for us to be reminded of who this God really is. He's not your homeboy. (laughs) He's not just your friend. You know, he's not the guy who is in the driver's seat of your car. He's God. Holy and lifted up. Mighty, magnificent, sovereign. Then there's creation. How does this creation? impact our lives. This world is God's creation, let's not forget that. And as such, it is beautiful in many ways. And it's great to enjoy. Now, if you've grown up in California, you're used to California, but if you've come here from outside of California, you quickly recognize that this is actually an incredibly beautiful place I mean, literally, you can, you know, you've heard this before, you can be, you know, surfing in the morning on, you know, at the beach, and then the same day, drive three hours east, and you can go skiing. I mean, where else can you do that? There's probably some other places you can do that, but this is so beautiful. I, I share this with you guys, you know, Matias Jr. was with us, missionary to Bolivia, and um his kind of home base is in Michigan. He came out here and he was just having a great time here. When he got back to Michigan, he he texted me, said, Pastor Rod, he says, it's so flat here. And some of you are visiting from Florida. Um, This is, these these are hills, not mountains, just so you know that, you know? I think Florida, you can actually look across the state. It's, you might see a gator popping up every now and then. But look, we we live in a beautiful, beautiful place, so enjoy it, take it in. But as you do so, reflect in your heart the magnificence of the God who created it. I mean, you can't go to a place like Yosemite and not think about God. And actually, I love going to the beach and just thinking, God, having said all that, this creation is still a place of darkness. It's still a place that is full of sin and sadness and hearts that are, that are struggling, pain, suffering. There's a reality that we need to have of the creation that is rooted in our understanding of God who sits over the creation. When Jesus says he came into the darkness and he was light in that darkness, we are reminded that this world is dark. And as much as we are here to enjoy the creation, we should, there's also darkness to avoid and darkness that can trip us up and darkness that we can be caught up in. So be careful and be mindful, celebrate and be wise. The third thing is the kingdom. I mean, this is ultimately where John is going, isn't it? He's saying, yeah, I wanna show you the Godhead and I wanna show you the humility of Christ in coming to this earth and how he did that and how he reflects. God, and so you can, you can understand him, and that by believing you'll have life, but this is, this is what he's do, doing in us. He has, he has called us to live in this new kingdom, and if he has called us to live in this new kingdom, this is the kingdom that he has created us for, and so we who know Christ as our Lord and Savior, we who call him our Lord Need to be reminded that this is what He's created us for and apply ourselves to what He desires for us or in us and through us in this kingdom. We are then to be reflecting the light of Christ in the darkness by virtue of the fact that we are in this new kingdom. This is who we are. We are His children, so we should act as a family. We are His people to reflect his glory. This is what he's called us to. And So friends, these these realities, these environments help us think through and give perspective to why we even celebrate a day like today and why we live our lives for his glory after a day like today. Because this is the kingdom into which he has placed those who believe, those he's called his children, and we know, of course, that kingdom to be the realm of the church. Those who are all followers of Christ. Friends, the church is a beautiful thing. You've heard it said many times, because many people from here have gone to other places, but one of, the, one of the joys of being a believer is you can get on a plane, you can travel 14 miles, and get off that airplane and get on a train and travel, not 14 miles, 14 hours, it's a short ride. It's like going from, from Oakland to San Francisco Have to think about that. Have you ever priced that out? It's actually kind of funny. Um, 14 hours. I'm thinking about when I went to, to, to Russia one time. 14 hour flight um, from, well, once you get to Kennedy over to Moscow. And then it was a, a 12 hour train ride through the snow and you walk into a church. And it's the church. (laughs) Just like here. People who love the Lord. People who have been radically changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you're home. (laughs) And you don't even know the language. But you're welcome because you're part of the body of Christ. See, that's, that's kingdom living. That's kingdom reality. This is what we have been given. And there's so many aspects of that kingdom reality that God says, I want you to work at this. I want you to work at this. I want you to live this out. I want you to be this. For my glory. So as we celebrate today, celebrate on a human level, yes. We'll probably go home and reenact the whole thing with our elder kids. We've done it traditionally for, I don't know, We're gonna do it today. Adam, I don't know what you're gonna be. You're gonna be a (laughs) lamb, I think. There's a human side, and we need to teach the human side, the story of Christmas, but remember the bigger picture, and that's what John wants to drive home here. God in eternity past, entering into creation, providing new life in this new environment called his kingdom, we understand to be the church. Lord, help us today. We're thankful, Lord, that we can celebrate today a, a, a day like today culturally, exchanging gifts, being family together, um, sitting around a tree and singing some carols. But all that stuff is good. It's wholesome. But Lord, may we pause to think about the big picture of why we are celebrating a day like today. And Lord, may we look beyond the events of it and to see behind it the purpose and the beauty and the joy. And that we would understand these words of Christmas that we see so many places, words like adore and peace and joy and life and believe Lord, they're all pointing to your purpose and to the fruit of that purpose lived out in those who believe, in those, Lord, who have been born of God, who become children of God. And Lord, on a practical level, I realize that many of us today may be gathering with family, but there are heartaches, there are burdens, there are struggles, there's suffering, there's 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 disease, Lord, there's all sorts of things that we we face, and yet what we need to be reminded of is who our God really is. And Lord, to be reminded of the fact that you are above your creation, not in in an aloof, distant way, but in the sense that you are sovereign over it, and you are master of that creation, then Lord, we can certainly nestle ourselves into your care. We can trust what you have revealed to be true in your word. And we can have confidence that you are at work in the midst of our lives, in the midst of the darkness around us. And that we can still, as your children, bring glory to you by living our lives in ways that reflect the light of the glorious gospel. Help us today to wrap our hearts and our minds around those realities, to live them out for your glory, we ask in your precious name, amen.